Chapter Eight of the Pocket Measure by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: Subtle Distinctions. There was a little rustle of silk just at her side. Silver gleams of it swept over the edges of her quiet blue muslin, and turning suddenly, she found that Mrs. Evans had slipped into the vacant seat and was holding out her gloved hand to clasp her own. I have been looking at you over in this corner for quite a little time, and longing to get to you. You looked so cool and still, and seemed to be having such a quiet, pleasant time. Given over to the selfishness of my own thoughts, said Mrs. Spafford, smiling brightly on her. I must bestir myself and try to be social. Oh, don't. It seems to me tonight as though everyone were trying to be social. If we could all give up trying for a little while, and just be it without any effort, it would be such a rest. The undertone of intensity in her voice told of such unrest that the listener was startled. Moreover, she was surprised to hear such an original and earnest sentence from this fair follower of fashion. Truth to tell, Mrs. Evans was just a little startled at herself, and made haste to add, Oh, I don't mean that. I beg your pardon. It must have sounded very strangely to you. I didn't think what I was saying. Does it really seem to you that there is no genuine sociability in the world? That it is all simply outside effort? Oh, dear, no. That would be a dreadful thing to say. I don't think I know what I meant. I just happened to say it. Mrs. Evans was manifestly frightened over the thought that she had overstepped conventionalities. Mrs. Spafford undertook to reassure her. Oh, I know, you were simply speaking aloud your random thoughts. But I wonder if there is not great truth in it. Wouldn't you like to know, for instance, just how much genuine enjoyment there is in this house this evening? I don't believe there is much. The tone in which Mrs. Evans spoke was so almost fierce that it told her companion, as well as words could have done, of a mental strain of some sort, so great as to unfit her for enjoyment in such a place. Instantly there came to her heart a longing to speak a comforting word to this storm-tossed soul, whatever might have caused the storm. How could she do it? Where begin? Did the fair face, so flushed just now with her own inner feeling, belong to the king? If so, was the trial or the burden or the annoyance beyond his power of soothing? She ventured a suggestion that, if answered frankly, would give her light. Oh, I don't know. Are not many of these people Christians? And are they ever other than happy, at least in a degree, when they are doing that which seems to them a right and proper thing to do? Mrs. Evans looked utterly bewildered. Christians? she said, repeating the word in a dazed way. What can that have to do with an evening party? My dear friend, what place in life is there that a Christian has not to do with Christ? I don't believe I know what you mean. The answer was so curiously simple and direct that it embarrassed the questioner. She hesitated what to say next. There was, however, such a troubled look on the child's face turned toward her questioningly, that she longed to speak comfort. "'Aren't you one of his own?' 
She spoke the words tenderly, and something in the tone of the suggestion brought a rush of tears to the young wife's face. "'Oh, I don't know,' she said hurriedly. "'I don't know what I am. It seems to me as though I am less than nothing. I haven't the kind of religion that you have, that is, if you really mean that it has to do with everything. I am a member of the church, and I try to help the church along a little, as much as I can, but I don't know how to do even that. And that makes me remember that I resolved, if ever I had an opportunity, to ask you what I am afraid you will consider an impertinent question, but I really don't mean to be impertinent. I ask it because I am in search of help. She had turned the edge of the conversation in so skillful a manner that Mrs. Spafford was afraid they would not get back to real heart work. But she answered promptly and cordially, "'You may ask me anything you please. I will promise not to be disturbed in the least.' "'Well, then, I beg your pardon, but Mr. Evans has a business acquaintance, I believe, with your husband, and knows the amount of his salary. All businessmen know these things of each other, I suppose.' spoken in an apologetic tone, and what I couldn't help being perfectly bewildered over was your having money to give for the church debt, feeling sure that you would have it from month to month, you know. I hope you will not think this unpardonable impertinence, she went on hurriedly. I assure you it is not a matter of mere idle curiosity. I am sure of it, my friend. I am not in the least annoyed." but I want to tell you my answer illustrates what we were speaking of a few minutes ago. That has to do with Christ. What has? Why, the money to give. I am not giving my own money, it is his, and he lets me spend it on his work. If it were mine, I might be tempted to spend it on myself. But since it belongs to him, of course it is a mere act of common honesty to give it back to him." Her listener was amazed. It was as if she were listening to an unknown tongue. Then suddenly light broke over her face. Do you mean that what you give is a sum left you in trust to use in this way? That is really what it amounts to, Mrs. Spafford said, perceiving meanwhile that her companion did not understand and that she must speak plainly. It is simply this, my friend, Mr. Spafford and I believe that the old direction, or rather law, about consecrating one-tenth of the income to the Lord, holds good today. It wasn't instituted as a type of Christ, you know, and therefore was not annulled as the types were when he came. We think the tenth is as much his own today as it ever was, and therefore we use it for his work, he graciously permitting us to act according to our judgment as to where to spend it. "'But I don't see how you can do it,' persisted Mrs. Evans. "'Rich people can, of course, and people who are comfortably off, but if one cannot live on his income and keep out of debt, how has he a right to give part of it away?' "'Perhaps he hasn't, the part that belongs to him. But you and I are talking about the part that belongs to the Lord.' I take it that I have no more right to use his money for my own needs than I would have to use yours should you give me some in trust. Oh, well, and there was a shade of coldness in the tones of Mrs. Evans's voice. It was evident that she judged her companion as a visionary person who could not or would not talk everyday language. 
That is pleasant to dream over, I know, but I don't understand it. So far as your argument is concerned, I can't see why it would not apply to all the money that we have. It is all the Lord's. No, said Mrs. Spafford, leaning forward and speaking eagerly. See here. Suppose you were to give me a hundred dollars a year, with this explanation, I furnish you this, or the means of securing this, for your own needs. You are to spend it as carefully and as conscientiously as you can, for whatever you intelligently believe it ought to be spent, with this exception. One-tenth of it is to be given every year to the support of whatever object you might choose to name." Would I have any right to use the entire sum, and say I had no money for that cause? Mrs. Evans's eyes had a thoughtful, troubled look. The illustration was so simple that she could not fail to catch its force. I hardly know how to explain to you what I think, she said hesitatingly, but it seems to me if I had plenty of money, and power to do what I chose, I wouldn't impose such a restriction on your little— when it was difficult for you to make the ends meet. But suppose, dear friend, you were gifted with the power of foreseeing all my future, and knew it would be a world of good to me to become personally interested in the various benevolences of the day, and knew also that you could make the ninety dollars left me reach as far, or farther, than the one hundred. Do you really mean that people who give systematically out of small incomes get along better than those who do not? I really believe that the Lord, when he said, Give, and it shall be given to you, good measure, pressed down, and shaken together, and running over, shall men give into your bosom, meant just what he said. I don't think many people believe in giving a tenth of their income. Do you? Not many, perhaps and yet I believe there is a larger proportion of such people than is generally supposed. But the main question, after all, is whether the Lord Jesus believes in it. If you have not examined the Bible lately, with special reference to this matter, suppose you and Mr. Evans take it up for discussion and study. I should so much like to know what conclusion you arrive at. A painful flush overspread Mrs. Evans's face, and, after a moment of embarrassed silence, she said, in a low voice, "'My husband is not a Christian, Mrs. Spafford. We never study the Bible together about any subject.' "'Oh!' said Mrs. Spafford, and then she, too, was embarrassed, so much so that it seemed to her there was really nothing left to say. Perhaps she had peculiar ideas. Be that as it may, she could not get away from the feeling that to be a married woman, and to have chosen for life one who could not sympathize fully with you on that most vital of all subjects, was a cause for great and lasting sorrow. What word of comfort was there that she could speak? What she felt like saying was, How could you, how could you, loving Christ, link your very soul to one who loved him not? But of what use to say this now, would it not even be cruel to say it? She tried to gather her thoughts away from the revelation so painful to her, and think of something to say calculated to help this perturbed soul. How could she best remind her that there was all the more need for a close personal union between her and Christ, since the earthly union, which was instituted in part to symbolize the heavenly, 
had fallen below its mission. While she hesitated, and the troubled look on Mrs. Evans's face in no way lessened, Mr. Evans came over to their corner. A bow and a cordial greeting for Mrs. Spafford, but no time to tarry. His business was with his wife. Lovely evening, is it not, Mrs. Spafford? And this is a very pleasant entertainment. I hope you are enjoying it. Eva, my dear, come and fill out this set. Two more are needed. Mrs. Evans arose reluctantly. She did not want to fill out the set. She did want to stay and talk with this quiet-faced woman, a woman whose face indicated no shadow of inward unrest. True, she did not understand her, and had been disappointed somewhat in the turn that the conversation was taking, but she was by no means ready to leave it. Mr. Evans, however, spoke with the air of a man who was accustomed to have his wife answer promptly, and with alacrity, the call to dance, and led her away with a smile and a bow. Once more Mrs. Spafford was alone, and she was still a trifle depressed. The evening was going in no sense according to her planning. Among her hopes had been this one of an earnest talk with the young wife, whose troubles of various sorts were beginning to tell so clearly on her face. But the talk had come to naught, had refused to turn itself into the intended channel, and had finally been broken into by a dance. Some more unfinished work, with no chance to take up the scattered stitches, so far as she could see, and go on with it again, content to fill a little space if thou art glorified. The couplet set itself over and over in her thought. They had been favorite lines in her girlhood. The whole poem had been a favorite with her mother. Well, she was content to fill the little spaces. It was just what she had desired to do this very evening. Quiet corners, with here and there a word dropped for her lord. Such had been her plan. But the plan had not seemed to work. She had tried, so she thought, and then she asked herself, had she tried after all? Could she not have said better words to Will Coleman if her heart had been more in it? Could she not, even in that little moment, have helped the troubled wife, turned her directly to the great helper? Was it possible that her effort had been half-hearted? That the blue muslin had obtruded itself in a way to distract her thoughts? It seemed to Mrs. Spafford a very discouraging evening." but it was not yet over. She had resolved upon leaving her retreat and mingling with the rest when it was again invaded. This time a middle-aged woman, with prematurely gray hair massed like a crown on her shapely head, and the simplest and quietest of toilets, less conspicuous than the blue muslin, dropped into the other corner of the tete-a-tete. "'I think I shall have to introduce myself,' she said pleasantly, I am Mrs. Temple. A long-continued absence from home has been all that has prevented my calling on you. I know your husband. Now what was there about this lady different from those with whom she was surrounded? Mrs. Spafford, even in the first moments of their acquaintance, tried to analyze the charm. Refined, cultured, exceedingly well-bred, so were all those about them. Yet there was a subtle, undefinable difference a something that drew the younger lady's heart and made her realize, even at this early moment, that she was talking with one in sympathy. 
What a delightful half-hour it was that followed. Their talk took a wide range and touched upon a great variety of subjects. On every one they were in sympathy. Thinking of it afterward, Mrs. Spafford tried to recall how the lady made known her connection with the great family of Christ. She certainly did not say in so many words, I am a Christian, and yet it was apparent from the very first. She is a person to study, Mrs. Spafford told herself. She carries the atmosphere about with her. She almost wears a uniform. Yet how simple and becoming it is. By the way, said the new acquaintance, half rising to leave her, then dropping back, have you organized as a church yet for the foreign work? I am not sure that we are organized for anything unless it may be festivals, Mrs. Spafford said, laughing. But I don't believe I know what you mean. Is there any special organization? My friend, didn't you know that we women have taken a stride into the center of things and are moving on the ranks in a thoroughly organized and impressive manner? Mrs. Spafford promptly confessed her entire ignorance, whereupon her new friend launched forth into a description of the first beginnings of the woman's board. She found Mrs. Spafford a ready listener and an eager questioner, promptly possessing herself of details with the manner of one who means to use them. "'But ten cents a month is such a very little sum,' she presently objected. "'How can you hope to accomplish much?' "'My dear, that is one of its beauties, not the accomplishing little, but the smallness of the sum. Don't you see it admits almost every woman in Christendom? I mean, of course, the Christian women. Even the very poor, whose hearts are in the work, can come into fellowship with us, and when the thousands of Christian women rise up in force and pour in their offerings of ten cents a month, unless you have settled yourself with paper and pencil and computed it as I have, you cannot make yourself imagine what a grand sum total it will be. I can have some faint conception of it, the younger lady said, her eyes shining. Here was a work in which she could participate. She thought of the box of jewels at home, waiting for a channel through which to flow. Not all waiting, it is true, for channels were plenty, but she saw her way clear to join this grand movement, and her questioning grew more eager. How did they organize and when meet? Who conduct the meetings? How were they conducted? I'll tell you. Mrs. Temple said, increasing in enthusiasm in proportion as her listener warmed with the subject. Come down to our next meeting. We meet on Thursday in the Twelfth Street Church. There you will see and hear and get more than I could give you in hours of talk. We have some grand ladies on Twelfth Street who have taken hold of the work with enthusiasm, and they will be just the ones to help you. Oh, you must organize, of course, Every church called by the master's name cannot surely do less for him than that. But, Mrs. Temple, don't you find among your members some who are not in sympathy with the movement? As Mrs. Spafford asked that question, their hostess flitted past them with a smile and bow, and the questioner may have had a vision of herself trying to interest Mrs. Bacon in the new movement. Mrs. Temple's voice dropped lower and she laid her ungloved hand impressively on her neighbor's. "'My dear friend, 
we do not find one-third, even one-third, of the Christian women of our church interested enough to attend to what we are saying and discover what we are trying to do. It is this fact that has roused me to my present pitch of enthusiasm. We have need of missionaries right here at home. We must evangelize the Church of Christ and get it to take hold of its privileges. I liked that plainly dressed woman with whom I was talking when you came up better than all the rest of them put together. She is simpler and plainer than the others, more like my kind of women. I fancy I could go to her house and enjoy a nice quiet little tea in a very plain way and be happy in hearing her talk. With most of them I felt a sort of not-at-home feeling. This opinion Callie confided to her husband on their homeward walk. He, as he was much given to doing when a good deal astonished, indulged in the whistling of a strain or two of music before he answered, My small, plain, modest little woman, do you happen to know who the lady was with whom you were conversing, and who is your kind of people? I only know that she is Mrs. Temple, and belongs in the Twelfth Street Church. Let me also inform you that her husband is Junius J. Temple, Sr., the wealthiest man in the length and breadth of the city, and their house in which you propose to take that plain, quiet tea is much the finest one that can be found within a hundred miles of us. I don't care, his wife said, laughing. Nevertheless, I felt at home with her. I didn't think of money in connection with her, nor of my blue dress. I can't describe to you the difference, but some of the people kept me all the time thinking about my blue muslin, instead of attending to what they were saying. End of chapter 8